Hello, Woodlane community. This is Pastor Brian, and you are listening to the Woodlane Worship Podcast, episode 080. If you are listening to this, you are an honorary member of our community where we seek to bring the presence of Christ to those around us. On this week's episode, as we start a new year, we often set goals or resolutions about how we want to improve our lives over the next 12 months. Oftentimes, these goals involve some version of getting healthier, physically, relationally, financially. These are all good things, but what about our spiritual health? How might that influence how effective we are at reaching all our other goals? I'd make the case that our spiritual health bleeds into all the other areas of our life, whether we realize it or not. The good news is that solid spiritual life is only two words away from all of us. Check it out. Well, welcome to 2020. A chance, a new year, a new decade even, a chance for a fresh start. How many of you guys are known for, or even just amongst yourselves, doing New Year's resolutions? One or two, a couple of these. How many at this point in the past maybe have 12 days in and you're completely derailed from New Year's resolutions? Maybe that's why not many people make them. I understand that. I am one who has always struggled putting the idea of resolutions into words, but to my own conviction, if you don't know what you're aiming at, how can you know if you get to it? I read a study on the top resolutions that came up in 2019. I hadn't seen anything yet for 2020, but some of them, the top three at least, came up as number one, to eat healthier. Number two, to exercise more. Three, lose weight. There's kind of this theme going on here. Some of the other ones that didn't make the top three at least, reading more, saving more money, and the idea is not more, spending more time with family and with friends. But in general, there's this theme of increasing health. Let me put it that way. Rather than necessarily doing more. Our physical health, our financial health, our emotional health, our relational health, the kind of things that people generally tend to want to work on. And they can be good, certainly good things. Uh, Many of my sabbatical goals fell into that kind of realm of just becoming healthier because if nothing else, our loved ones benefit when we are healthy people. But what about the idea of spiritual health? What if one of our resolutions was to be more spiritually healthy in 2020 than we were in 2019? What if we focused on that? I'd make the case that just like a wheel, if we have our spiritual health figured out, or at least moving in the right direction, all the other areas of our life, the benefits start to filter down into that. If we are spiritually healthy, the odds go up that our relationships are better. The odds go up that our physical health is better. People actually in the scientific community will vouch for that. Odds go up that our financial strength or health improves, that our emotional health improves, all out of this core of becoming spiritually healthier. Paul was a guy who thought he had his spiritual health figured out, thought he was a spiritual Olympian, if you will. And by extension, I mean, he had many things going for him. He was, as he says in when he writes to the Philippians, he had all the resume as far as being religious. He had all the knowledge top of his class as a spiritual guy. He was the poster child of a man on a mission. Jesus shows him in Acts 9 that his 
the mission that he was so gung-ho about was a little bit misguided. And there were some things about his religi- religiosity, uh, his spirituality, um, that weren't quite working out anymore. And he's transformed. Once he gets spiritually healthy, according to Jesus, all of a sudden, he is a man on a mission truly bigger than himself. He's a, a man that we're still reading and looking at what he wrote even 2,000 years after he wrote it. He's a man who gets real hope on this mission. It's a mission, it's a spirituality, it's a health that is powered by Jesus and his spirit. And as this mission is going along, and this newfound man of spiritual health is starting to engage churches all around the area. He writes to this church in Ephesus. And he says, opening up, he says, you were dead through your trespasses and your sins. Okay, that's a bit bold. Um, if there is any idea to spiritual health being sort of the anchor of a lot of things, that is a great way to start. Um, so let's see, maybe the NRSV translators were having a bad day. So let's see if any other Bible translations say this verse, Ephesians 2.1, in a better way. Tell me you got something here for me. Um, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, ESV. Uh, okay, nope. Try another one. As for you, you were dead in your tra- transgressions and your sins, NIV. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got one more. Let's hope, let's hope, let's hope. Give it to me. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Great. Can't escape it. You dead sins keeps coming up. (laughs) Maybe the you is specific. Maybe he's writing this you person in Ephesus. Maybe you were the problem. Maybe you were dead. Um, Except, nope, that you is plural. Y'all were dead in your transgressions and your sins. The Texan way of translating Ephesians 2.1. If this is a message of hope, this is Paul kind of painting himself into a corner here, isn't it? Maybe things get a little bit better in context as we read more of the passage. So verse 2 and 3. Dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you once lived, following the course of the world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work among those who are disobedient. All who once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everybody else. Not much better. If there is really this idea that our spiritual health sort of filters out into our other areas of our life, it's almost like this is a virus that's spreading. Or so it seems. Now, it can be really easy after three very dismal, hopeless verses to think, okay, let's, let's just keep it out there. This happened, this was written 2,000 years ago. Let's just leave it in the archives of the annals of history and not think about how it applies today. But that would be a little too safe. So let's real-worldize this a little bit. In the 21st century, how often... And I I say this wrapping myself up in the y'all as well, trust me. How often is, what does God want, the motivation 
behind the decisions that we make. If somebody does not have any faith affiliation at all, they check the none box in, that, in a survey, pretty safe to say that the answer would be never. I never care about what God wants. I just worry about what I want. But what about for Christians? The Sunday school answer may be, yeah, 100% of the time, that is what I think of. What does God want? But if a Christian makes 100 decisions in a day, how often is that our motivation? The first motivation, the instinct, the default thought in our heads. Probably not as much as we might like to have for that Sunday school answer. And again, I wrap myself up in the y'all of this as well. I've been a Christian now probably 20 plus years. And I'll admit, still 90% of the time, when a decision comes up, the first instinct, the first almost default that I go to is, what is it that I want? How do I want this to work? What is it that I desire out of this? Now, hopefully, as I have grown, as I have matured, as I have been transformed, what I want and what God wants are not as far apart as they were 20 or 30 years ago. But I have to admit, it still sometimes takes that, okay, let me check myself. Is this what I, what I want or is this what God wants? Now, I'm not thinking God is too worried about, you know, do we want ham and cheese or do we want a BLT for lunch? But still, so often, even as Christians, that can be the default. What is it that I want? Through our sins and our transgressions, we were dead. Verse 4, but God. Forgive me, I'm just going to stop on these two words for a minute because they are probably, when put together, my favorite two words as a Christian. But God. This totally, I mean, forget being spiritually unhealthy. We're talking complete spiritual death, as Paul said. Hopeless. But God. Forget we're looking you know, walking into a graveyard. We're six feet under with the dirt falling on top of us. But God, when every single strand of hope seems like it is gone, maybe even when it is gone, but God, we are beyond spiritually sick all the way to spiritually dead. But God, putting those verses actually together, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. We were dead. And Paul makes this thing about laying out our our before condition. We were dead, but a merciful God, full of grace, through Jesus, made us alive. By grace, you have been saved. Paul, I think, lays into this idea of of what our condition was so that we can appreciate the life that this grace is giving us. I had said last month, if you were to ask two men on a beach what it felt like to be saved from drowning. Well, if somebody had been just on the beach the whole time, they'd be like, "Mm, great, it's all right. You ask somebody who just got yanked from under the water what it feels like to be saved from drowning, Totally different answer. I think that's why Paul puts us, paints himself into a corner. This is how bad it is so we can appreciate but God. What God did to bring us out of it. 
whatever shell of a life we may think we bring to the table as far as our spiritual health, all of the life that we have is because of that grace and what God does. And Paul says later on when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, you were not, because of this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. By grace, you have been saved. It says in the latter part of verse five, Warren Wiersbe says, uh, he's a Baptist theologian, he says, grace is love that paid a price. So true. As we see, uh, going straight on to verse eight, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. He really lays this idea out. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one can boast. Really lays again that idea. We're bringing nothing to the table. None of us. No matter what kind of church background we have, no matter what kind of spiritually healthy parents we have, no matter what our pedigree or our ancestry.com says we have in our DNA, we don't bring anything to the table. But God, because of that grace, gives us life. And we often say, I'm going to kind of prove Wearsby's point a little bit. Grace, as we understand it, is something, giving somebody something they don't deserve. Right? The idea of if somebody hurts you and you forgive them, they, may not, they probably don't deserve it. But if you're willing to do it, you're giving them something that they don't deserve. In fact, the word for grace translates into the word gift. Same, word, same Greek word, gift or grace. Well, we just came out of the Christmas season, the season that often has gift-giving kind of wrapped into it, no pun intended. So think about it. When a person gets a gift, does it cost, them, does it cost the recipient anything? No. Unless, of course, the giver is absolutely evil with scotch tape, in which case there's a lot of effort to try and open it. I know a few people who... Uh, fit into that category for sure. But the idea is it costs the giver everything. The giver absorbs the cost of that gift. God, through Jesus, absorbed the whole cost of this gift of life. This can all sound great, but unfortunately, spiritual health sometimes feels like it's abstract. Like, how do we actually put our hands on it? What do we do with this idea? How do we grow in this idea that we can't touch or feel or, or see with our eyes. Fortunately, Paul, now that he's finally kind of gotten over that hump of how dismal things are, and he's gotten to the hope part, gives us a way that our spiritual health, how we respond to this gift, can play out. In verse 10, he says, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And we finally get to see this idea of how something tangible fits into the picture. What we do, how we treat other people, how we love one another is a way that our spiritual health plays out, how we say thank you for this gift. Now, can a spiritually unhealthy person do good things, volunteer, teach, run a nonprofit? Yes, they can. Those can be honorable pursuits. But doing that with spiritual health, with spiritual life, it's like that is the way that what comes out of your faith. We do good things because of what we've been given, because of that gift that we don't deserve. So how do we make this work in the day-to-day? 
I want you to hold this one idea in mind as you go through this week. Because this whole passage kind of has this theme of shift in it. You know, you were dead, but God. You used to live for yourself and your desires and your ways, but God. There's this shift, this transformation going on. So let that play out in the day-to-day. Like this. Whenever you do something nice for somebody... Big, small, whatever. You can be totally gracious and brag to yourself about all the nice things you do because you cannot overdo this. Whenever you do something nice for somebody, use that as a reminder to pray this simple prayer. God, thank you for life. Whenever you hold open the door for somebody, whenever you be creative about all the nice things you can do, use that as a reminder to say, God, thank you for life. Because that will, do, that will make a shift from, I'm just doing this because it's nice and, hey, I got something to brag about. Well, Paul says God gives us life through grace as a gift, so we don't get to brag about it. But use it as a way to say, hey, God, thank you. Puts the focus back where it belongs. So that this spiritual health gets healthier. And then, by extension, all of a sudden, it becomes easier. It becomes more of a default to want to help people out to want to have strong relationships, to want to take care of our bodies, even, that God has given us. Now, maybe you come into this and you think, you know what, I've never cared what God wanted. There's good news. Every Christian has been in that exact same spot. Because again, no matter what our pedigree may be, we don't bring anything to the table. But the good news out of that is that when we come before God, trying to glean spiritual health. We don't have any stuff to work out before we can do that. It comes simply out of saying, Jesus, give me spiritual life. Forgive me for the times that I've lived for myself, the way Paul says in that dismal situation. And do whatever it takes, whatever you've got to do to transform me into somebody who wants to live for you. Just the way Paul, the person who wrote these very words, does. The good thing is Jesus takes care of all the other shifts that need to go on. And it doesn't, you know, we don't just instantly get it all right the second that Christ comes into our life. As I said, I've been a Christian 20 plus years and I still default sometimes to what is it that I want? Oh, wait, let me think about what is it that God wants me to do. The good news is no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done, No matter what we may look at in the mirror and think, there's no way God would take somebody like this. No matter what that picture looks like, but God, who was rich in mercy, out of the great love for which he had for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the Woodland Worship Podcast. I hope we've given you something to make you think. If you'd like some more information about our community, check us out at woodlanechurch.org or visit our Facebook page at Woodlane Newark. If you happen to be in the Finger Lakes area, come check us out live on a Sunday morning at 9.45 a.m. See you next week on the Woodlane Worship Podcast.